nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day. There's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub. There's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app, and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car, and the other driver follows. Download the pickup app today. That's PKUP, and wake up worry free. Hi, I'm Jack LeBrock. Hi, I'm David Reynolds. You're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel. And it's uh, a time, it's a new year, 2022. Uh, a time that I don't remember thinking about, gee, I'm going to look forward to 2022. But uh, it's a time when we're going to look back, look back at a time before this this decade and this century to when uh, we had pre-tire choice. We've got on the show this week one of the men who's been involved in motorsport as a tyre supplier, as a competitor and someone who many people have looked to for a lot of information over many years, Russell Stuckey of Stuckey Tyres. Welcome to the show, Russell Stuckey. Thanks very much, Tony. It's a pleasure to help you. Well, look, we're glad to have you on board because there's few people in this country who know more about the tyres that uh, our premier sports run around on and few people who act more experienced than you. Tell us first of all about Stuckey, the name, and tyres. Okay, well, it's embarrassing when you talk about last century, but I guess it is. Um, I came to work in my father's family business in 1969, and it was a very small, niche type of business. And in 1972, Dunlop appointed us as their distributor for motorsport. At that time, we knew very little about it, but we were happy to give it a shot, and everything grew from there. So very humble beginnings in 1972. I can remember going out to Calder where we were using tyre levers and mallets to fit tyres and a, a very young Alan Hamilton came over and helped himself to all the equipment because he had been part of the Dunlop scene for many years and uh, we got to know him and uh, our business grew and uh, it was an exciting time. I, You refer to the period as when tyres were free. Well, at that time, it, it didn't seem a novelty. It was the norm, and we were supplying tyres to all manner of categories of circuit racing and hill climbs and rallies and all those, and it was just a matter of if we've got the better tyre, people would buy from us, and on that basis, our business grew. Well, it was certainly a time of a, a lot of different categories. We had very strong sports car category, which Alan Hamilton, of course, would have been getting in that sort of era for his 906 and 908s and things like that. Um, you must have had to sort of very quickly ramp up your knowledge of motorsport tyres. Oh, it was a very, very steep ramp, I can tell you, because we came into the business. We were appointed in, oh, when was it? Uh, September or late in the year, and we knew absolutely nothing about motorsport, but we we learned quickly and we began going to all the race meetings, whereas in the past Dunlop hadn't. Dunlop was, in in the era before us, it was automatically that you would buy a Dunlop. The, the very few options may have been Goodyear and Firestone, but that was about it. 
And, of course, there was the period of treaded tyres. And shortly after we got involved, and quite fortuitously, Alf Costanzo had a motor garage just down the road from us, and he was racing the little uh, Elfin Mono, and he came to us and started talking to us about slicks. So we, we sort of learnt on the job, and we grew into it as the industry grew. It's one of the interesting things that slick tyres became very fashionable very quickly, uh, I imagine that there was a fair amount because to learn uh, about them because they behave so differently to treaded tyres. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Dunlop pulled out of Formula One racing in 1969, about the same time we got involved, and uh, their excuse for getting out of Formula One was because at that stage, racing tyres were departing in technology from the road tyres, so they had no justification for technical development. Um, in, in truth, it was a lot to do with the costs, but, yeah, the technology of road tyres and race tyres were diverging quite rapidly at that time. For road tyres, we were getting into radial ply tyres, and in those days, the radial was the worst possible tyre to race on. I know that back in, in the late 60s, they were racing on radials at Bathurst in touring cars, but that was only because they were more durable, not because they had any handling benefits. Uh, it was a lot later where radials actually came into their own in race tyre development, but in those days, they were quite disparate. This would have been the Michelin XAS, as I remember, that the Monaros ran on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And strangely, the wheels turned a full circle, and we are now... The Michelin motors, uh, sorry, the Michelin vintage and classic tyre distributor, and we'd love to get our hands on some XAS one eight five fourteens, which is what Bond and Roberts use on their Monaro in sixty eight or sixty nine. I can't recall, but that was the Bathurst winning tyre. I'll have a set of those for my MGB too, thanks, uh, Russell. <laughs> well, you can because we stock a Michelin XAS in a one eight five seventy fourteen, which is the perfect tyre for an MGB. So I'll talk to you after the show. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, so Michelin, Michelin reproduced the full range of those old tyres, but uh, we digress. In race tyres, that was the last thing you'd want to use by choice. Back in, in 94, we had seen the second year of the V8 category, as, as you and I both knew it, when Holden and Ford were going head-to against Ford Factory and Holden Factory cut cars. Um, and this was a time when... You know, the best tyre deal you could get was the one that you're going to have on your car. And uh, you were out there competing against Yokohama, Bridgestone, and yourselves uh, with a, right. a fairly good range of tyres, both wet and dry, steer tyres, drive tyres. It was a, a fair amount of uh, range in there, wasn't there? It was a hectic time. We, we started um, in touring cars a lot earlier than that. But around that era, it was the tyre battle. Um, Bridgestone were firmly ensconced in the Holden Diller team and they seemed to have an advantage at tracks like Phillip Island which were particular arduous and hard on tyres. Dunlop seemed to have an advantage at Winton and the, some other circuits. I can't say in all honesty that Yokohama seemed to have an advantage and I'll get shot down for this but they supported a few teams but I don't think they were ever seen, seen as being the tyre to have. 
off the back of his uh, back-to-back championships and back to position. So he was aware of the desire that they obviously had been on a very good improve their cars to desire to suit their cars. Yeah, and of course the uh, the Godzilla, you could just about drive on those with flat tyres, couldn't you? Russell, um, it was a fascinating time uh, across that era. So it was probably about five or six years before Dunlop uh, uh, maybe pulled out. Uh, you probably uh, would have been a part of the process, but uh, Bridgestone certainly won the very first of the tyre contracts. Um, That's right. Were you involved in the? Uh, were you involved no. in that process for the? Uh... No, the right. the control tyre era began around 2000. Up until that point, we were heavily involved because it was a commercial business for us. But when they went to a control tyre, all of a sudden, we had no need to be there. Bridgestone. So we we dropped out. Bridgestone had the first three year contract, and from then on, every contract. Uh, Dunlop won, uh, but because they were supplying, because they were supplying at such a low price, because they really got screwed on the deal. Um, Dunlop just wrote it off to advertising, and there's no opportunity for us to make any commercial involvement. So we sort of disappeared from the scene around about the 2000 era. So up until then. I lived and breathed and slept race ties for touring cars, but after 2000, we had to move on to other areas. We, we, you know, we're still very heavily involved in all other areas of motorsport, but for purposes, for my purposes, I don't consider supercars any longer to be part of our motorsport scene because it's merely just a contract that Dunlop supply. And you, you still obviously service across uh, the other categories, and, and that includes uh, open wheelers and sports cars, both oh, road going and also full blown sports cars. Absolutely, we're still heavily involved in motorsport. It's still the biggest part of our business. Uh, the growing part of our business is that vintage, specialty tyre business, but motorsport is still the biggest share. So uh, it's still what we do, it's just that we don't go to the eight supercars anymore. Okay. Um, so typically, what, what would your schedule be for this year like? You've got, obviously, state rounds. Well, to be honest, we haven't finalised the calendar for this year yet. But it's always slow in getting cemented uh, because it's usually built around the V8 supercar calendar and they lock in their dates and everyone else falls in behind. So we'll be doing state-level Whereas we used to travel interstate, we're now just concentrating on Victoria and uh, there are other Dunlop distributors that concentrate on New South Wales and South Australia, for example. So we'll do state level, we'll do a lot of Winton meetings, a lot of Phillip Island meetings, a lot of Sandown meetings and a lot of rallies, hill climbs and other events, you know, other speed events. Such a long time ago now, um, and your son Chris, of course, has worked for uh, as a race engineer um, for some of the biggest teams and names in the country. Um, that you obviously have some interest in following it because of your son's involvement. Well, yes, but not day to day. To be honest, I, I I know supercars are still a big part of your life, Tony. But for me, it's less important. Uh, yeah, Chris grew up. He. I used to sit up late at night 
recording uh, the Formula One races, and of course, Alan Jones won in 1980. Uh, Christopher was born in 1974. So when he was old enough to put the tape in the VHS machine, he was absorbing everything about motorsport. So he reached a stage where his dream was to be a race car engineer. And to his credit, I, I give him a lot of credit, he, he, he left school early, came to work for me, did not know what he wanted to do. Then one day the penny dropped and he decided he wanted to be a race car engineer. So he started an engineering diploma converted that to a degree as a mature age student, which I know is very, very hard to do, but he stuck at it, qualified as an engineer, which made the whole family immensely proud, and he went on to get into the into the business. I'm sure his original hope would have been Formula One, but didn't quite make it, but uh, it still is his life, and I'm sure he, as I did, lies in bed thinking about race tyres and cars. To that end, Russell, can you talk about your relationship with Dunlop? We certainly speak to Kevin Fitzsimmons a fair bit, as you can imagine, on the show, and it's fascinating the way he has to work in to be able to make sure tyres get into the country. Did you have a relationship like that where you needed to find out the production windows and go through all those... those, the minutiae of the supply oh. chain to be able to successfully make sure you had tyres for Bathurst, tyres for all the different tracks. Absolutely, but in those days it was not just supply, it was also about tyre development. So the Japanese came out on many trips for tyre testing. We would have a constant flow of information backwards and forwards after each race meeting. I'd send a report on the qualifying because we were in fierce competition with Yokohama and Bridgestone. So it was a constant battle, um, and with all you know, all credit due to Kevin, he does an excellent job. But uh, the development side is not that critical. It, to, to supply a control tyre, you've got to have a tyre that's safe and reliable and consistent. Uh, although you know, with the introduction of the softer tyre, they were trying to introduce variability and consistency. But um, it's mainly a supply issue, and it's a massive responsibility these days because of the number of tyres involved and the logistics of getting tyres to other countries and to other states, uh, it's a massive job. And in those days it was more about we had a smaller number of customers because we only had about a third of the field, but it was a constant battle. So it was reporting back developments, development ideas, test tyres being produced, flown in, arranging test sessions with our drivers in the time were Larry Perkins and Dick Johnson. They were the main two, although we did a little bit with uh, Wayne Gardner as well. So it was more about a smaller volume of tyres but more intense development. And, of course, once you develop a new spec, then you've got to rush into production and get them out here. So, yeah, a real headache. And, and as I say, lying in bed thinking about supply and development uh, and you had it ruled my life. You, you had that uh, period where it was really an open slather for testing. You could right. have the teams go out, and teams were going out once a week to test the cars. So, how many days were you at a racetrack over the course of the year? Would you say? 
uh, I never added it up. But um, I used to go to all the touring car rounds in the state to keep track of all the developments. And this was an era probably between the mid-80s to the mid-90s when there's a lot of massive development. Um, I, I don't know how many days, but uh, testing with Larry mainly at Winton, testing with Dick mainly at Lakeside, and, uh, you know, it was a very, very big part of my life and clearly and obviously affected my first marriage. <laughs> but that, that happens. The intricacies of what the two different cars and drivers, Larry and, and Dick being the predominant ones, wanting, yes. were they often on the same page or were they often going, I want you to go in this direction and Dick wants you to go uh, in that direction? Yes, yes, yes. Um, we were led astray. I, I say led astray. Um, Dick Johnson, someone showed Dick Johnson a picture of his Sierra going through a corner with a tyre rolling under massively. And he said, see, we need much, much stiffer sidewalls. So we went down the wrong path at that time. The solution is, obviously, with a stiffer sidewall tyre, you actually lose grip in the tyre. The solution is to manage the camber, whereas Larry wanted to minimise the camber because he wanted to have better braking in a straight line. So trying to satisfy those two different requirements was very difficult. And obviously they were unique ties. So Larry was a Commodore and Dick was a Sierra and it was unique. But we we did have to police more than one master, which did affect us. How many different tyres were you getting developed at any one time? Was it a case there were four distinctly different tyres that you were working on at any one time? Well, the... No, we, we didn't. The Japanese are remarkably, oh, how can I describe it? They did not like to go off at a tangent. They liked to make only very small incremental improvements to make sure they weren't on the wrong track. So they didn't, you know, we, we made outlandish suggestions and they dismissed them out of hand. It could only be very small development so that, as I say, they don't lose track. Um, it's frustrating dealing with the Japanese, but it is a benefit. They are very, very, very slow to change, but they are excellent in dealing with. They are reliable, and even though we speak different languages, they understood. Whereas um, after the great earthquake, the great Hanshin earthquake, we had to air freight the moulds across to England to get tyres made in a hurry. And um, whilst we spoke the same language, I question whether we got the same understanding. Anyway, it was an interesting time. And so we've benefited by having two suppliers, uh, Dunlop UK and Dunlop Japan. And there were times when we were using both. And we, to this day, we use both as suppliers. Do you often have to ask for specials to be made or is that sort of a bespoke tyre not, not really available these days? Not available these days at all because of the exchange rates. Japan has been forced to um, 
maximise the volume, minimise the variation to get uniform consistency and uh, minimise the number of variations. And likewise with Japan, with England. Uh, they don't like making specials for people, but there was a time. You know, Alan Hamilton wanted to win the Australian Hill Climb Championship back in, I think it must have been the late 80s or mid-80s, and he bought a Lola IndyCar, and they come with 15-inch wheels, and he said he wanted to run 16-inch wheels. So, so, okay. So we asked Japan to make a unique front tyre for Alan, a unique rear tyre. They were prepared to make six of each, so they made totally unique tyres, which would never happen today, and brought them in, and he won the championship. And that was a measure of the relationship we had with Japan, where they were prepared to do these special development tyres. They saw it as growing, and they were. They were developing and growing in the in the industry and having massive successes. Um, but the time came when they had to rationalise and be more commercially headed. The the tender went out, and you, you touched on this before, the tender went out, there was yourselves... This was you, in 2000. In 2000, yep, and you had yourselves, Bridgestone, which of course Kevin Fitzsimmons was involved with, and Yokohama. Yep. Did Dunlop tender at that time, and what was your thoughts oh, on absolutely. how that was going to go? Well, the ten- we were not involved in the tender because that was done at a direct factory deal between Dunlop and uh, Avesco. Well, no, was it Avesco at the time? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, we did not get involved because that was um, way above our pay rate. Um, they, up until that time, we were selling the average touring car tyre at about $600 each. The first year of the contract, the price went down to 300 And uh, obviously, you can see the incentive for Avesco to introduce a control tie. You'd be aware, Tony, at the time, all the privateers were whinging about not having access to the special tyres, and nobody wanted to play ball with them until Avesco realised there was a dollar to be made out of screwing the supplier, getting a very, very cheap price, and then on selling them. So from that moment on, there was no longer a commercial opportunity for us. Indeed not. Indeed not. Um, it, it's a, f- a fascinating time in the history of uh, our sport, um, but obviously uh, motorsport goes on regardless of whether control tyres or not. Um, I mean, for someone of my age, and I'm in my 70s, um, I must say, look back on that period from the, the 1960s through the 90s as an era when you know, people were being able to be far more innovative. Do you look back on that and sort of think of it was a great time of our sport? I missed the last question. Do you look back on the time between the 60s and the 90s when there were far more innovative things being done in motorsport? Yes. There was far more innovation by engineers and drivers. Um, yes, it's now yes, so absolutely. controlled that you just don't have that chance. Yes, and the lack of... Uh three different tyre supplies. Um, They've tried to replicate that by um, introducing softer compound tyres to force people to adopt different tactics during the race. But in those days, every team had a different tactic. uh, And I remember there was a lot of discussion about banning qualifying tyres at Bathurst. 
And Ivan Stibbard, bless his soul, who's no longer with us, he said, no, let us have, let us have qualifying battles. It makes the whole race more interesting. Everyone's got different tactics. Let them do what they like. So by having a single tyre supplier, albeit two different compounds and different strategies that are forced on people, it does regiment the whole sport and to me, you know, it, it has lost its appeal. It was so exciting. But it sadly, it's modern technology which you can't undo. Uh, control tyres are being introduced in most categories purely, in my opinion, to benefit the organiser. That gives them a source of revenue. But it does dumb down the racing and uh, it means that everybody has to do effectively the same thing because they're told what tyre to use. Um, there was a guy very early on who raced clubmans and when I came into this business in um, 72, the clubman was a very popular car. It was a very simple chassis and people could use a 1300cc engine and that was about the limit of the control and they normally use 13-inch wheels, much very similar in size to the Formula 2 tyres of the era and then one brilliant Spark said, hang on, if we run 10-inch diamond wheels on the front, we can lower the frontal area and have a big benefit, and he did. And that was an example. You know, you talk about the Tyrrell, the six-wheel Tyrrell. It's exactly the same thing. You allow people to innovate. It's a lot of interest. You take it away, it dumbs it down. Indeed, Russell. It's been terrific talking to you. Um, I, uh, at the same time that you were fast-tracking and learning about uh, the tyre game. I was actually uh, not quite Mr. Goodyear, but I was in charge of uh, Frank Manich's Goodyear Race Tyre Division in 72. Uh, I didn't know I, that. I wasn't managing, but I was there at... Uh, yes, I was there at Oran Park fitting up Alan Moffat's wheels and tyres in the oh, way okay. using those same tyre levers. And, yes. Uh, yes. But I'll chat with you when I see you. Um, it's been to reminisce on this era and uh, I certainly look forward to a time when I can catch up in person but thank you for joining us inside Supercars, Russell Stuckey of Stuckey Tire Fame Well thanks very much, it's been a pleasure to uh, talk about the old days I have to close by saying I don't really like talking about the old days and the way it used to be because people might think we're against evolution technology whereas selling race tyres is all about development, up-to-the-minute technology and state-of-art tyre performance. And that's what we concentrate on today, but it is nice to reflect back on how it used to be. Uh, in fact, um, this year we celebrate 50 years in motorsport and uh, it's been a very enjoyable 50 years from 72 to 22. Indeed, it has been. And Russell, be with me. You enjoyed Formula 1 did early 90s. You have to look at a sponsor's colours. The shape of the car told us which team they were. And that's yes. the, the delightful era of motorsport. And it's not dumbing it down, but these bloody wind tunnels have ruined the sport forever. They have. Um, if I could just introduce another uh, aspect, uh, forgive me, if you've got time. Yes, yes, please. When, when, um, when the, the supercars or V8 supercars or V8s at the time were controlled by Tiga, you had a very smart engineer involved. He was on the committee, Larry Perkins, 
and he would argue against all of those modern fangled developments such as, uh, um, you know, someone said, let's go to 18-inch wheels. He said, no, we've already got 17-inch wheels. They'll do. They wanted to use um, electronic engine management and all those, uh, you know, ABS brakes and all those, you um uh, sequential gearboxes. He said, no, 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 let's keep the cost down. Sadly, Larry Perkins was ignored to the demise of the current state of uh, V8 supercars. Sorry, they're not V8s anymore, they're supercars. But uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people will miss his sensible input. In, indeed, you're very right there. And um, both Craig and myself were showing through the the Gen 3, as they're now called, cars that will be introduced in next season. That's 2023. And uh, I have to uh, sort of shake my head and wonder if the very same uh, people who are setting the benchmark and the way they should be uh, uh, doing it are really aware of the costs that are going to be involved because it seems to, to us that uh, there'll be another explosion of costs and more teams will walk away from the sport. But as Larry would well know, that uh, motorsport will always end up competing. Um, people will be there trying to do it, but when there are less teams competing and the pie gets smaller and all those sorts of things, it's not the same as when there was open field with everybody trying to get the best what they could. So true, so true. Thank you, Russell Stuckey. Okay, thanks. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.